there's going to be constant testing and probing by small forces aligned with a central axis of powers that do not like democracy and think that we will give up eventually and go away because they know right now we're distracted and weakened and there's no strategic core to what we are doing. We have to win this. We have no choice. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We're closing in on about 700 days since Russia invaded Ukraine last February. And recently we've been noticing a shift in conversations about the war and a growing pessimism that Ukraine can take back their land from Russia. So today I wanted to spend some time with my good friend Molly McHugh about the current state of the war and that pessimism. Molly, as many of you know, is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, and many other publications. She's the lead author of a newsletter called GreatPower.us. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Molly, welcome back. As always, thanks for making the time. Thanks for letting me come on. I think I told you this um, conversation was sort of catalyzed by some recent tweets I've seen and uh, uh, by people I follow, respect, who've had generally good um, posture on the war, uh, seem to be changing their minds or at least changing their understanding of where the war currently sits in Ukraine's ability to win it, at least over the last two and a half months or so. There's been a lot more focus on the war in Gaza than the war in Ukraine. So can you maybe start by helping us understand what the current state of the war actually is from a high level? Yeah, I think, um, look, we've seen a lot over the past three, four months in terms of assessing the quote-unquote counteroffensive that began in the spring. Um, And I think uh, probably where we should start is the article that was written by Ukraine's uh, commander-in-chief, General Zaluzhny, in The Economist, or, or he wrote it separately, but it was published in The Economist a few months back, uh, along with an interview in which, of course, the headline was Stalemate in the War. But the article itself was quite clear, which was currently there is parity between fighting forces in Ukraine for a variety of reasons, uh, in particular because the provision of weapons by the allies to Ukraine has been paced at such a slow rate that it has allowed Russia to dig in in the east. And to overcome that parity, uh, there needs to be an acceleration of provision of weapons to Ukraine um, and X, Y, Z things, uh, then more will be clear in time. And I think uh, it's very clear what he was saying, which was, we have the fighting force, we have the will, we have the vision, we have the people who can do this, um, but we need weapons, we need munitions, uh, we need the ability to shoot, we need the ability to shoot farther, we need the ability to protect our troops with armor and with air defense. Uh, And all of that has been pretty freaking slow, making its way into Ukraine now almost two years into this new phase of the Russian invasion. Um, I think that was a pretty fair assessment. And I think, of course, what everybody saw from that was stalemate and not actually if you just delivered on what we've talked about, it would be at a very different place. Um, And so I think the thing I would point to now as a place to reorient our heads on this is... Um, On Friday, this past Friday, uh, whatever day that would have been, December 15th, let's say, um, the Estonian Ministry of Defense uh, published about a 20-page 
sort of thought slash white paper on the new strategy to win the war in Ukraine. Uh, it is very clear that it can be done. Here's what the things are that need to be done. Here's what those things actually are. When we say Ukraine needs air defense, what does that mean? Well, here's what's worked. Here's what they are. Here's what it'll cost us. And breaks it all down in very like nerdy, idiot-proof math and reality. So it's not ephemeral, what does it cost to win in Ukraine? It's very specific about capabilities and what needs to be delivered. And says, if we view 2024 as the strategic defense rebuilding year, uh, where we are building capabilities in Ukraine, in manpower, in all the other things very strategically over that time while building up our own ability to produce munitions and other things, and view 2025 as the next um, sort of key moment of deliverable, then if all everybody who says they're currently in till the end, quote unquote, with Ukraine, uh, is willing to commit to this plan, which will result in Russian defeat. Um, it's 0.25% of GDP per country for that period of time, which is not very much. And it's, you know, depending on what country you're talking about, between 20 and and 10% of the amount, for us a little less, uh, that we're spending on our defense budgets overall. So it's basically saying, if everybody just takes this little piece that they say they're actually already doing and commits it to this plan and we all commit to the plan and we act as a unit and we do these things, we can deliver what Ukraine actually needs in terms of training and equipment and capability. And I'm sorry, that's a really long explanation, but where we have been since this magical wiggle fingers counteroffensive narrative started in the spring, which didn't really come from the Ukrainians, it came from people trying to help Ukraine tell you what was going to come in the war next. Uh, everybody has been stuck on waiting for the next big show. And uh, it's trench warfare right now. And we can help the Ukrainians change that dynamic. Um, but it's very clear what needs to be done. The Ukrainians have told us. Others are telling us there is good math and good calculus about what this needs to look like. Uh, so the question is, are we going to do that? Or are we going to stay inside this echo chamber that we and Russia have created for ourselves uh, where it is impossible to win and it is all stalemate and really we should just find a nice point to get out and negotiate and let Russia normalize itself again, which has already started happening, which is appalling. I want to get to the counteroffensive in a little bit, but um, first, just beyond the actual fighting, how has our understanding of Ukraine and Russia's military strengths changed? I've seen some analyses that have uh, have Ukraine um, having essentially wiped out 90% or something like that of, of Russia's military capacity. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Maybe you can shed some light on that. Um, and then also, I wonder, um, you know, I, no I noted the catalyst of this was some changing minds or some changing attitudes toward Ukraine. And I wonder if there's anything that the uh, that the camp who has consistently been, we shouldn't be wasting our treasure on this other country sort of, is it, are there any points that they have scored or is there any, you know, in the, in the narrative debate, is there anything where, where they've actually made some traction and, and, um, and won? Uh, I know those are two separate things, but I think they're kind of related. So maybe you can touch on those. Yeah. I mean, on the latter point on sort of, is this narrative gaining traction? Of course, this was the whole Russian strategy the entire time, was just to let enough 
Palmics and Chechens and whatever other ethnic minorities they're sending to die in Ukraine die and not care about it because they can train X number of troops every six months, which is faster than Ukraine can train X number of troops every six months. Um, and eventually we'll get bored and stop arming Ukraine and go away. And that is exactly the strategy they have pursued. And unfortunately, despite the fact we know that, and since the first day of the war, President Biden and everybody else has been saying what Russia wants to do is exhaust our will. We've allowed our will to be exhausted and not provided the proper framework for looking at what the challenge is. I think in the U.S. in particular, I mean, the Republicans have gone through rounds of narrative on what they're going to say about Ukraine. Uh, it seems like a lot of what, and while I say Republicans, I will again say it is not a monolith. There are a lot of core Senate Republicans and a few others who are still working really hard to get the aid bills for Ukraine passed. Uh, but the lazier Republican narratives have gone through a number of iterations. It seems like what Zelensky got when he stopped in Washington on his way back from his trip to Latin America um, was very much, yeah, 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 you, yeah, we're, we're fine. We're fine with you, but how can we defend your borders until we defend our own? And there was this linkage between this U.S. border bill that they went past and whatever next aid thing for Ukraine. Um, which really, I think, was intended just to shift the political onus back to Senate Democrats, as far as I can tell. But um, And now there will be some sort of games, and maybe it will get passed, maybe after Christmas. I do think the next aid tranche will get through. Um, but again, the whole point of what the Estonians were trying to put out there and what the Ukrainians have been trying to say from the beginning... Uh, and if you look at, in particular, where we have failed, which is the mobilization of our defense industries, which Russia can do very easily because it's all state stuff and they can just flip the switch and hire the people and make the munitions and magic, is we've been doing this piecemeal stuff. So, you know, Lithuania will say, we'll buy you 20,000 shells. France will say, we'll buy you 40,000 artillery rounds. And that's not how you mobilize mass production in the defense industry. They want massive orders and they know what it'll look like and who is ordering it and what the continuity will be so they can hire the workforce to do the things in three shifts a day. Uh, and we haven't been sufficiently focused on mobilizing that capacity. The U.S. has started it. Uh, it is planning to be more ready to produce meh, roughly three to four times the amount of artillery shells that we do right now by the end of 2024. But one might question why it will take until the end of 2024 when this started in February 2022, and we had the intelligence in August 2021. Yeah, can we just pause on that point for one moment? Because I think this is important, uh, and many people maybe don't understand this, or it hasn't actually sunk into the narrative. But from what I understand, the way we are actually giving Ukraine aid is not by sending them boatloads of cash when you hear, you know, uh, X, you know, bajillion dollars of you, you aid going to Ukraine. It doesn't mean we're sending them money. We're sending them our own stockpiles of munitions that are aging out, uh, and and then using that money, using that supplemental aid to buy new stuff for our own military. Biden pointed to this, I think, in his Oval Office address dealing with uh, Israel Hamas uh, the first time he addressed the nation. Um, but I still don't think that reality has sunk into the way we talk about Ukraine aid, certainly not uh, the way headline news tends to capture it. So um, 
there is a big question there. Why has it taken so long to ramp up our production capacity when we knew we were going to have to do this? I do think a piece of it is for sure that, I mean, the way that we are asking Ukraine to fight this war, we would not do. We would not fight a war without air superiority or air support really of any kind. Um, uh, So I don't think anyone had really recently done the math on what only a land war with Russia, which has, you know, 15 generations of shitty rusted tanks and mountains of aging Soviet munitions uh, to throw at anything, sometimes with like a catapult if they need to. Um, No one really thought through what a land war without any air superiority from either side with Russia would look like. And uh, the answer is there's a lot of shooting. There's a lot of shooting. And the Russians shoot like four times more artillery than the Ukrainians do. It is a monstrous landscape of unexploded ordnance and destruction in the East. Um, But we did not adequately conceptualize what this would be. And once we started seeing it in the first couple months of the war, uh, did not mobilize properly to respond. And I think, you know, it really points to a failure of imagination. We had the intelligence, we had full visibility on what was coming and what was likely there. Uh, Our assessment of Ukraine was not accurate, but that was not the problem here. Um, There was a decision not to mobilize resources to stop the Russian invasion because they thought it would succeed. Um, And then the decision to counteract it was meh. And I'm just, there's no way around that. Uh, the Ukrainians forced everyone into this fight by showing they weren't going to die immediately. And our policy has never adequately reoriented. And yes, there is the right rhetoric. And yes, I do believe there are good people in the U.S. administration and in European governments who have really been fighting on the side of the Ukrainians um, to mobilize resources, to help everybody sort of reimagine how our alliance needs to operate. Because yes, Ukraine is not a NATO member. But this is a total failure of deterrence. And I know that people in the U.S. administration love to say, NATO deterrence is perfect because Russia didn't invade us. It's not. If, our deter- if we can't like, point to our main adversary and say, do not do that, or there will be consequences for you, and it does nothing, then deterrence was a failure. And I think everybody really knows this. So there's been a failure to reimagine in the context we're in what needs to be done. Uh, if Ukraine will not stop fighting. And the fact that we haven't listened to that number one point from Ukrainians from the first day, which is we will not stop fighting, leaves us in a really weak position. And I think that's where we are with the Estonians and the Ukrainians and some others trying to really kick the ball forward and say, it is an achievable task. This is what it looks like. It can be done. Why can't we actually conceptualize it? Okay. I want to ask you what exactly it is that needs to be done in specific terms. But first, can you explain what does it mean that 90% of, or whatever the number is that I've seen floating around, of Russia's military capacity has been uh, destroyed? What does that mean in real terms? Are we talking about tanks? Are we talking about bodies? Are we talking about... Absolutely. So many questions on this side. Uh, Again, I am not a military expert in these analytical things. I tend to think uh, a lot of these things are actually not particularly helpful in the way that they're being presented. But what it means in real terms is a lot of Russian shit has been blown up. Planes, helicopters have been shot down, 
a lot of tanks, like catastrophic numbers of tanks. The Ukrainians publish the numbers every day. Other armored vehicles, air defense systems, missile batteries, uh, are, you know, just it, everything all the way down to like regular old trucks, just absolutely catastrophic losses of equipment and catastrophic losses of uh, manpower. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dead uh, Russian troops, um, to say the least. Uh, numbers the are not really being so clearly published by the Russians, but um, in in real terms, a real significant loss of uh, mobilization capacity for immediate conflict. That being said, Russia is a huge giant thing. Uh, again, they can train a hundred thousand plus conscripts in six months. It doesn't mean they're going to be great quality, but it's bodies you throw into the trenches to fill the next round of graves. Um, and they can produce a lot of artillery, which right now is the thing sort of keeping the war in place is artillery fire from both sides. Um, so I, I think in terms of the Russia's lost X percent of its fighting capacity, whatever the X is, they've had significant losses of equipment and manpower in Ukraine. Um, I think there are a range of very disparate and not uh, aligned assessments of what that really means in terms of if Russia were to do something tomorrow, like how much could they mobilize in two months if they needed to do another thing? I think there's a lot of disagreement about that question still. Um, there's been questions about how Putin has done mobilization. They haven't really done full mobilization. They're sort of relying on conscripts from places that are not St. Petersburg and Moscow, where all the nice hipster Russians live and don't want to be fighting the war for all these other people. Um, so the politics have sort of sculpted some of this a bit. But uh, Russia can't pretend like it's been easy peasy war times. They've lost a ton of equipment and personnel uh, and they don't care and they're not really talking about it um, because they know that every Ukrainian loss is a lot more for Ukraine than a loss for the Russian Federation, because that's just the value of life on the different sides of the line. And it's terrible to say, but it's absolutely the truth. Um, but it, it is, I mean, it's, you, it cannot be dismissed that Russia has lost incredible amounts of, of things and, you know, millions and bazillions of dollars of stuff. They just produce more and they don't care because they can mobilize their economic resources uh, pretty much in any direction they want to fill that gap. And they're not debating whether there can be another approval by the parliament of stuff. Or, like, they just make it. It's fine. They're not encumbered by democracy. So No. <laughs> Later on, I do want to get to the specifics of what needs to happen next if Ukraine is going to win. But let's spend some more time on First, how we got to where we are, there was this very widely reported uh, counteroffensive that began, I think, about five months since Ukraine launched it. Um, what was that supposed to do? And did it succeed? Did it fail? And I ask that with this context that depending on who you ask right now, the question, who's winning? you will get widely different answers. There's no consensus, it seems, uh, on who's actually winning this war at this point. And, um, you know, some people say the counteroffensive completely failed. And some people say, no, now they're, maybe now they're at parity. But um, 
How has that gone? And where are we now? What were they trying to do in the first place? I mean, look, they're just trying to retake territory and get closer to being able to capture Crimea, right? Like, there's no magic to whatever the plan is. The plan is get Russians out of as much of their country as they can. And the easiest way to do that is cutting off Crimea or getting to Crimea and recapturing it Um, uh, in some aspect of when you retake territory. But I mean, it's a pretty simple, the immediate task is pretty simple. And uh, I mean, not simple in terms of how you execute, but simple in terms of what it looks like on a piece of paper. Um, And I think after what we saw in Kharkiv and Kherson, there was sort of an assumption that Ukraine would be able to execute similar sort of mass territorial recaptures uh, quickly. But I think, you know, and again, not as a military expert, what I see is the strengths that Ukraine had at the beginning of the war, uh, which really uh, helped them in their earlier offensive moves, which were its decentralized structure, its informality, the sort of guerrilla level tactics and fighting, um, which have kept them sort of light and fast and able to evade um, getting stuck in with the Russians in a lot of different places. Um, when you have given Russia 18 months to dig three depths of trenches in eastern Ukraine that are hundreds of kilometers long, and put rows of fortifications in between those and hundreds of millions of mines across all of Eastern Ukraine, which means any yard of territory you retake has to be demined or costs you men or vehicles, uh, which is slow, which gives the Russians time to shoot at you with drones or artillery. That's not where your small unit tactics are going to be super successful because you have to be able to get behind things and sort of hold. So I think uh, there's a lot of training of Ukrainian forces that we need to step up on. And part of this is our failure, right? Like we were trying to do things fast and training defensive tactics is fast and training offensive tactics is slow. And we're not giving people the training we gave to our soldiers before we sent them to World War II. We're giving them the quick, cheap version, like five weeks and out, guys. Good luck. Let us know how it turns out. And that's for good reason. We needed to help them get training done. But it's time to go back and look at bigger level tactics for offensive operations um, at how we can help their uh, soldiers and their commanders better prepare for these things at how we can equip them adequately to go into them um, and uh, how we can sustain between now and sort of when they are ready to make those moves, how we can get our equipment and, uh, and sort of training pipeline in place to put them in the best position to actually accomplish what we know they needed to do. Uh, Instead of just looking at it and being like, wow, maybe the Ukrainians will work some miracles without any long range missiles or proper training and then making faces when they fail, which is really what we've done. And I think we need to be very critical of ourselves about this. And yes, there are lots of people on the interweb that will like conspiracize about these things, but I really do think it is, it it really just comes down to an utter inability of most of our Western policy and intelligence apparatus to imagine a different relationship with Russia, because what we have been doing this entire time is allowing Russia to dictate the pace of the war and the outcomes of the war uh, in a way that speaks so poorly to our own strategic imagination and concepts uh, that I really think we, um, 
we need to have a long, a long think about why we are where we are. There is no way to look at significant Russian defeat and significant Ukrainian victory that does not put the United States and its allies, its defensive alliance, which we rely on for all of our security things and a whole lot of our economic well-being in the world. There is no case you can make for Ukrainian victory and Russian defeat that does not enhance our deterrent capability, which is what we want. We don't want to have to do another one of these. We want people to be adequately deterred by our force, our structure, our might, that we do not have to fight wars. That's the whole point. Uh, So we have to get this right, or it's going to be 10,000 disruptions, like Hamas, like the shit in the Red Sea, like whatever the fuck Venezuela is doing, excuse my language. Uh, There's going to be constant testing and probing by small forces aligned with a central axis of powers that do not like democracy and think that we will give up eventually and go away. Um, Because they know right now we're distracted and weakened and there's no strategic core to what we are doing. We have to win this. We have no choice. In an article earlier this month, um, the New York Times reported that American officials were saying that without a change in strategy, 2024 could be similar to uh, the year 1916, which was the deadliest year of World War I, um, when thousands of people died, but the battle lines didn't change. Basically, no, no land changed hands. So how do you expect the strategy to change heading into 2024? And I think I would contrast that with how... How should it change heading into 2024, which are two different things? Yeah, uh, I mean, look, in terms of the, if there's not a change in strategy, they're saying, Ukrainians, what are you doing? Why have you not won the war? We do not understand. And um, that's just so cynical that I can't really make eye contact with it even. But uh, yeah, we do need to change in strategy. And the strategy is our strategy to support the Ukrainians for the goals we clearly stated from the outset uh, and from what we know the Ukrainians are going to accomplish one way or another. Um, Yeah, there's been a lot of manpower chewed up. Why? Because in every situation, as we have been discussing on this lovely podcast since the beginning of February 2022, when the Ukrainians don't have the shit they need, they fill the gap with dudes and ladies. But like Ukrainian lives are what crosses the capabilities gap from what you need to what you have. And we know that. We know, like, there's been all this cynical stuff written since we started sending heavy armored vehicles into Ukraine where it's like, oh, well, they just got that vehicle and drove it right over some Russian mines. And, like, what was the use of that? It's like, well, there's 20 guys who are alive. That's the difference. And uh, before it would have been 20 guys in a truck who were super dead. And uh, there's just this inability to look at the math in real human terms um, that I just cannot honestly understand. And to be blunt, our Ukrainian friends and allies are real. It's not that they haven't always understood this, but they're really beginning to understand this. And uh, that is not the way we want this war to go or how we want it to end, whatever that end is, which I'm just going to say again, should be a Ukrainian victory. It is there. It is possible to achieve. The Ukrainians can do it as a fighting force. Uh, we just need to help them continue to train, continue to prepare, continue to rearm, continue to prepare their own sort of defensive lines for the next offensive Um, And again, I think this Estonian paper did us all a lot of favors and our homework 
by really breaking it down into precise capabilities and weapon systems and who can produce them. And Europe needs to do this and America needs to do this. We've already said we're going to do this, but maybe we need to do that much more. Uh, which defense companies are going to make lots of money out of this, which Boeing should be super excited about. But um, it's very clear in terms of very specific capabilities available now that have been used and tested in Ukraine, uh, places where there does need to be some innovation, particularly on uh, all the lightweight drones that we've seen thrown around by all sides in Ukraine. Like, we should be making those, not China, just going to say. So there's lots of things in there where there is opportunity for economic innovation, for growth in the West, for blah, 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 blah. Because as you said before, Ron, uh, when we say X amount of money is being spent on Ukrainian defense, really what that means is we're buying stuff from ourselves. New stuff. We're buying <laughs> like new stuff from Ukraine. ourselves for ourselves and giving them other stuff. Stuff that we can't shoot. We, we don't have things to shoot it. And I think the other thing that we really owe sort of a debt to in this whole process is we've really... Uh, and it's not just on munitions. Like, we just had assumptions that we as the mighty West, like, sure, we're not making that many weapons right now, but if anything happened, like, we'd be fine. And we're not. We can't ramp up capability fast enough without sort of the legislative and executive level interventions that I guess we're not comfortable doing anymore. Uh, it's not just artillery munitions. We have trouble with political will. Yeah, and, like, I, I guess defense companies really won't do anything until they have orders for five years or whatever. But like, no, I mean, it, it's very clear what needs to happen. Um, but if we think we're going to be able to deter a conflict with China, not being able to make enough munitions to rearm the Ukrainians, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. So we now see all these weaknesses. We can't unsee them. Like there's no undoing what's happened in the last two years. So the only way out of this is actually victory in Ukraine, period, end of story. Otherwise, everything is weaker, everything is harder, the next war costs 10 times more. Yeah, I want, I mean, I certainly, Biden must see and believe that more than anybody else, because you could make a very strong case that uh, his reelection may hang on success in, success or failure in Ukraine. Um, if the if, if Ukraine doesn't win and it's seen that, United States has abandoned this uh, ally, um, and and they end up succumbing to Russia. Then that's not a good look, uh, especially coupled with the Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, he he will. Um, I don't understand. And again, not a domestic politics person, as you know, really don't want to pay attention at all most of the time. But I don't understand how it is that we have the, according to especially the White House, strongest, bestest, most amazing American economy we've ever had. Americans are rolling in cash. They're not concerned about anything because they're so well off. Uh, But we can't make the case on this small issue, which is actually a huge boon to the American economy and defense industry, so we can help this country survive. That's really good for us, that we'll make NATO stronger, that we won't have to do so much work the next time we have to do one of these things. Like, Really, nobody in the White House with their middle class foreign policy nonsense can put this together into a coherent talking point for the American public. It's kind of mind boggling to me. And they're not even trying. And I understand it's hard. I understand nobody thinks they want to hear about it. But it's such weak tea that everybody is sort of assuming the other side will look worse on isolationism. I just I don't understand. 
One thing along these lines, and I know this is a bit of a detour, but I'm curious about your thoughts because I think it does help, uh, would help the administration make a more compelling case to the American public for um, for more and swifter aid to Ukraine is this idea of <laughs> the, the idea of America. So you'll remember that um, when Biden made his appeal from the Oval Office, when he was addressing the nation about Israel and Hamas, he said, he referenced Ukraine and he said, when I go there, I carry with me the idea of America. And then he went on and, um, and uh, I've mentioned this to Mike on the podcast, I've brought it up a couple of times, but as, as remarkable as that speech was, and I thought it was actually excellent, there was one big, um, big sort of flaw for me, which was in invoking the idea of America that he carries with him and that, that all of this is in service of, he failed to define it. He didn't offer Americans a vision for the America that we're fighting for and how, what, what is the idea that he carries with him? And I think without that, without that really compelling articulation of what it is we're doing here, what is this idea that we're fighting for? What is it that we are trying to defend and spread around the world? I think it's impossible to rally more political support. And so I know you've you've thought about this extensively, you've written about it, and I wonder what would be the case that you could make to America that doesn't rely on these abstract concepts of uh, strategic interests, global security, uh, economic, right? What would be the approachable, the accessible idea articulated to the American public in a way that um, you would resonate with them here and now in their, in, you know, in the present moment where they stand as opposed to asking them to think abstractly about geosecurity? I wish I had an answer to that that was so coherent and simple it would be like, oh, but America is so atomized. Everybody wants to hear a different thing. And uh, I know that's a cheap answer and kind of an evasion, but... Is the problem diagnosed correctly? Do you think that's the problem? It's hard for me to know what's the symptom and what's the problem. The way we speak to people is very fractured. And the assumption is thus, that they do not want to hear the other things. And maybe they really don't. Maybe they really don't believe in them. Maybe everybody is so far down their old narrative rabbit holes that, you know, you could talk to one side about how Ukraine is fighting corrupt, like Ukrainian people don't want corrupt oligarchs. You should support them. And that would be great for them. And everybody else would be like, what are you even talking about right now? And you could talk to the other side about the big values or religious freedom or whatever it is. I don't know. But what I've been thinking about a lot lately in a very cynical, sad way is, you know, it's not like we got in World War II because a lot of Jews were dying. We did fuck all until Japan attacked us. Let's just be clear about our moral righteousness here, uh, including turning away refugees who were fleeing that conflict. So, um, why are we so slow to get involved in these things? Uh, I would like to say that saving a nation of 45 million people uh, who are like us, who want to be like us, who, honest to God, if you talk to any Ukrainian fighting the war right now, sound more like America than most Americans do in a convincing way these days. And it's so refreshing that it just makes me cry when I walk away from a conversation with them that like, they can say it in two sentences. They can tell you in two sentences why what they're doing matters. And every single one of them believes it 
and it comes out of their eyes like light. I remember and sitting, the rest of us are staring into the darkness. I, I remember sitting with you and Mike and some of your friends in Kiev at a cafe, listening to them describe exactly that and getting choked up over it because they sounded more American than most Americans I know. And they still believe it and they don't know why we don't. And they keep wondering when we're going to show up. And it's so painful. Uh, so I think that for me, the thing always comes back to, and I really think this remains true, a total failure of an understanding of leadership in America right now. And will it take time to reorient the American public, which has become likesy, clicksy, everybody needs to respond to my feels online about politics? Sure. But you got to try to lead. Somebody's got to try to lead. Somebody's got to try to sell a narrative to people that is truthful about where we are and where we can be and what we face if we do not get there. Uh, and not just talk to the easiest, biggest percentage of the polling that day. Um, because we are in a shit place in terms of our national values. And we are facing some real challenges. Nothing. I mean, the thing that's so stupid is all of us feel like America is falling apart. Well, America is actually kind of fine in most real ways. Nobody's attacking us. You know, our security, our immediate security is fine. Our economy is doing pretty well, regardless what critics of the president want to say. Uh, there is opportunity. There are other things. Yes, we have plenty of things to unfuck within the country. But the country's in a pretty good place if you look at just about any place else. And uh, somehow in that, we feel misery and that we cannot do anything good for anyone else. And that is truly like the first step toward the end of whatever we were. Um, I still think that we are strongest and best when we are projecting our ideas into the world because we believed in them. These weren't, you know, subjective ideas. They were tested and came from historical understanding of the importance of human freedom and human rights. And if we really are not going to believe in any of that stuff anymore and say it's totally fine that two thirds of the world is not actually believing in any of these things and that people are human chum and they're going to be thrown in the trenches for the next war. And eh, who really cares because we won't fight them anyway. Uh, well, I don't want to be in that place. Like that sounds pretty shitty to me. And that's kind of where we are right now. And I really think that we need to have a long, hard talk with Americans about what the options are. If we really think we could just go home and close the shutters and be inside our magic TV box, I guess, or whatever we call streaming these days, because nobody really watches the television. But I, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get what people think any of this is for. If it's just sitting at home and making money and worrying about our retirement. Let's turn to what Ukraine actually needs to do. To, to win and what we actually need to do to help them uh, get there. As you mentioned, it's been really tough to actually take back land from Russia and to actually find their way back to seizing control of, uh, of Crimea. And obviously there's this uncertainty about if and whether there's actually going to be more aid coming in. I think Biden is convinced it will happen. You believe it's going to happen. Um, the Republicans in Congress, as you mentioned, have sort of changed the negotiating table around so that now instead of uh, 
um, negotiating, uh, negotiating over other things. They're now tying this to border security, which Democrats, for some inexplicable reason, are reticent to actually provide when it would actually be a, a, a big political uh, win. Um, this seems like a no-brainer. But nevertheless, that has slowed down and stymied uh, the White House's effort to get Ukraine through to uh, to get aid through to Ukraine. Certainly, this isn't the last time we're going to need to send them more stuff. But what's in this package that they need so mm-hmm. badly? What is uh, what tools, weapons, ammunition, et cetera, do they do they need to move forward? And you know, based on where things currently sit, what are the likely best possible outcomes uh, for Ukraine and? Maybe we should leave the the prospect of a settlement for a follow up question, but a lot of people are talking about that now. So uh, maybe let's come back to that in a minute. But first, what do they need? How much of it do they need? And what actually gets them into a position to take more land and eventually take Crimea back? They need, in an immediate sense, the consumables. So a lot of artillery rounds, like a lot of artillery rounds, thousands and thousands of artillery rounds a month. Do we have that to give right now? Are we in a position to, do do we even have it? We have enough to provide uh, for the immediate future. The Europeans have also ramped up escalation and have promised, uh, uh, they promised a million rounds by within whatever amount of time is. And they might get, they might get close uh, to getting there, but they they have ramped up some production a little slower than I think we have been able to, but we have more things. I mean, there's all these other challenges inherent in that, right? Which is like, there's this size round, but actually there's 28 versions of that size round and everybody shoots a slightly different thing. Why? Because defense companies want you to have to buy their specific stupid thing. It's like the iPhone plug conversation we were having before. Basically, it's like every artillery round is like an iPhone plug that doesn't fit in another phone. And... Um, this is like something we've allowed to propagate within the Alliance, which is completely stupid because the whole point of the Alliance is defensive interoperability. And I should be able to shoot a Belgian thing if I need it. And the Belgians should be able to shoot my thing if they need it. And it shouldn't be like, Oh no, what do we do? We should all be using USB-Cs. Come on. (laughs) It's so there's all sorts of, again, weaknesses that have been exposed by this literally munitions dump into Ukraine where they have, you know, 50 different platforms they're shooting off of in terms of guns and armored things and shooting things. And they have to train on each of them. They have to know how to fix every one of them. They're using all of our refuse, essentially. Like any any systems we can get there that are good, and there are some good new things. They love the Swedish stuff that's coming in, the CV-90s. Um, there's a lot of new things that are coming in that they're using. There's a lot of old stuff that they're just like gluing back together and continuing to fire. But they'll take whatever because that's how they're filling the gap. Um, But in the immediate sense, what they need is the consumables. They need things to shoot from all of these different things we've given them. And uh, they need missiles, you know, medium and longer range uh, missiles. Um, Things that they can shoot out of HIMARS systems uh, are fantastic to start with. Um, They need a lot of different things to shoot. And let's just leave, including like small arms ammo. Like they need all the things that you're shooting when you're in a massive artillery war with the Russian land army. Um, They need uh, a step up on the weapon systems that we've been providing to them. So, okay, the stuff from the 60s is great, but maybe some newer things that are a little more unified, uh, a little more cohesive in terms of how they will enable them to operate 
Um, they need air defense systems um, in an immediate and real way, both for cities and uh, on the front. Um, they need uh, lightweight drones. They need medium-ish drones, drones that can fire things, drones that can surveil things, uh, drones that can crash into things and go boom. Um, they need Because all of these are essentially consumables as well now. Uh, they need body armor. They need uniforms. They need light weapons. They need uh, all the stuff for the army they're training. And they went from whatever the initial number was, 150,000, 200,000 troops to 700,000 in a year. Uh, and they're still filling a lot of gaps in basic equipment for all of those people. Um, on the training side, like I said, I think that uh, mountains were moved to get these troops uh, ready to fight in a hot war very quickly. But I think it's time to uh, take the next step on the small unit tactics. Um, look at how you then organize larger offensive operations at a brigade level, you know, beyond uh, how you move units of armor together, how you synchronize things together. Um, the Ukrainians know this isn't their strength yet. Uh, we need to train them for it, but we also need to be arming them for it while we are training them for it, while helping them defend at the same time. So you can imagine the like layers of things that need to happen. But it is doable if you break it down into nerdy spreadsheets and look at the numbers of who you need to train, who needs to be defending while you're doing that, uh, what you need to provide when. Um, I'm underrepresenting massive categories of things on the list. But I mean, the bottom line is you need to keep training Ukrainians and you need to keep enhancing officer capability so that they can fight larger offensives without losing lives, as many lives. Uh, you need to continue to kill Russians, a lot of Russians, and it's terrible to say it that way, but you need to kill more Russians, uh, or as many Russians as we are currently killing, uh, while disrupting the way that they are able to train their own troops. So you have less coming in while there's still the same attrition rate, so they can't repopulate units as fast. Uh, there's good planning on how you can disrupt mobilization um, capabilities and training in Russia. Um, that also includes things that have nothing to do with weapons, right? Like we have all these lovely sanctions that have been crafted by beautiful laws, but they need to be enforced and they need to take bigger bites out of Russia's ability to rearm, rebuild, retrain, remobilize, survive economically in this stupid war. Um, the money that has been seized from Russian oligarchs, uh, Russian frozen assets overseas, um, needs to be repurposed to help fund the war in Ukraine uh, and to help cover Ukrainian losses um, and financial stuff during the war. Um, there's a list of very practical steps that will make it easier for all of us because it won't be every two months there needs to be an agonizing discussion about X billions of dollars for whatever thing. I think the idea of the two-year plan that is essentially presented by the Estonian Ministry of Defense, is we know if we keep doing the piecemeal shit, it doesn't help the Ukrainians because they can't adequately plan for what they need to do in six months because they're just focused on, are my guys going to be alive in a week? Um, it helps us with this. Everybody, everybody is having trouble. Everybody will always have trouble selling this stuff politically. After a while, your population, even if supportive of the war, nobody likes austerity measures. Nobody likes 
cuts and benefits. Nobody likes hearing about any like why isn't why aren't my lights on? You know why why can't I have free education and and free public transportation when we're arming these Ukrainians? Like it's just, it all starts echoing back in doing it as a longer range thing and breaking it down into a teeny tiny number, which is roughly for most NATO allies ten percent of their defense budgets, but 025 percent of GDP per country. Um, makes it seem real small that we're not willing to do it. Uh, and then there's within that opportunity for all of us, uh, all of our companies, all of our workforces um, to do well economically while we are providing security for ourselves and for the Ukrainians. Um, I do think this plan that the Estonians put together is enormously well thought through and it leverages, you know, piles of other people's research. It's not all Estonians sitting in a box somewhere, but I mean, but my, the point of the paper is it is very clear if you actually just make this, but what, what is the question actually? Like, here's the military planning exercise. This is the thing we need to do this. How do we get there? Uh, it's achievable. And I think just taking off the panic hat of, oh my God, maybe like the Russians are just an impenetrable army of death and Ukrainians can never possibly win as much as we love them. And the war must be negotiated to the end. That's the Russian smoke and mirrors that we're back inside. And actually looking at victory is achievable. Why are we not willing to make the decision to achieve it? That's where we are right now. That's the real question for me. Okay, so if victory is achievable, but we ultimately don't make the decision to achieve it, and Ukraine is forced to accept some other outcome than victory, first of all, will they accept some other outcome that doesn't include uh, Crimea. Uh, the question is, is a settlement actually a possible outcome at this point? Is it, is it something that Ukrainians would even accept? Uh, is it something that Putin would actually agree to and abide by? Ha, 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 ha. Um, what precedent would that set? And as I'm asking this question, I'm thinking about our conversation with Rustam Omarov when we were in Ukraine together. And I think he's, who is now the minister of defense, I believe, uh, who I think said this began with Crimea and it will end with Crimea. Look, I think will a negotiated end to whatever conflict people are imagining in their heads, return the hundreds of thousands of stolen Ukrainian children that Russia has taken and adopted off into Russian families. Uh, what about the other twenty to 30,000 missing Ukrainian civilians who've been unlawfully detained by Russia in Russia, like, and taken into Russia in most cases? Uh, that's, you know, like a half a million people probably that need to be recovered. Uh, will the negotiation help that any? Uh, will the negotiation help with war losses? Who's rebuilding the Ukrainian economy if we're negotiating an end to this war? Um, the Ukrainians don't think that what they have done is for putting it back the way it was on February 15th, 2022, which is uncertainty, instability, and a threat to their families and their lives. Um, right now, if we end the war now, for whatever reason, it is a fairly significant Russian victory, not from battlefield victories, uh, but from what they were able to achieve with a failure of deterrence, which is Ukraine is split 
people are all over the place. There have been millions of people who have had to leave Ukraine in the context of the war and go elsewhere. Why would they come back to a nation that is not at peace with security, uh, with a future that is economically prosperous? Um, that's what Putin wants. He wants an end of Ukraine. Why on earth would we end the war in a way that gives him what he wants in the first place? Um, when it is unnecessary, uh, the Ukrainians have never asked us to be there fighting with them. They have never said, why aren't you here next to us? Why aren't you willing to help us? All they have ever said is just help us fight this war. We will do it. We will do it all. We will do it all. We will do it all for you. We will keep the Russians over there and you guys can sit over there and we'll just do this. They've never asked for anything more than that. And the fact that we can't deliver on that is uh, pretty disappointing. What, what would it do to Putin's sort of image and ability to project power if, if a settlement is the end of this war? For the big, huge chunk of the world that isn't the transatlantic alliance, uh, what the war is, is Russia against the West, and particularly against the United States. And if we are really not willing to support the Ukrainians who notionally for the past 30 years we have been supporting in their independence and quest to be in NATO and in the EU, if we are really not willing to save the Ukrainians, to help the Ukrainians save themselves from an illegal invasion, which is very clearly an act of aggression, which is a top violation of international. It's like the main inter- the main reason we have international law was active aggression, meaning you invaded something for absolutely no reason. Like that's why international law exists because people needed to stop doing that. So if what we're really saying is actually all of this was bullshit, and we have just been defeated by Russia and had our asses handed to us, and now it will be embarrassing, and we're going to try to sell it in so many like oh it's. It's peace, and we all love freaking peace, and peace is magical. Well, in the meantime, what's happening everywhere else in the world is what everybody has learned is, well, you make your own deal with Russia, you make your own deal with China, you look out for yourself, there are no alliances, uh, and this international law thing is complete bullshit, so I'm going to go fucking take that piece of territory over there from these guys, because who cares? And that's really kind of what's been happening a little bit since 2014, But particularly in the last two years, there's been a lot of uh, strange activity that we haven't really had a lot of time to pay attention to. But there is fracture already occurring because the idea of deterrence is breaking down. Um, And this is not as much as Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia likes to think about this concept as something that happens in Europe. It is not about Europe. Um, It is about the global system that sort of just keeps everything where it is, uh, and allows non-might forces to help dictate our futures. And uh, I, I really, I really just, I understand living inside the bullshit anti-imperialist nonsense narrative universe that the Russians spew at everything that is not Europe and North America. I get it. I understand why it's, yeah, I know totally. Like I get it. I get why it's fun for everybody to be like, you know, ha it's another 
white people war against more white people, who cares? Like, fine, fine. If that's really what you want to think, like the Ukrainians deserve to die because they're white. That's a cool thought. But um, that we don't understand what the consequences to all of our security will be. And that we no longer care. We're no longer really talking to any of these things. We think we're being smart about little small strategic engagements in these places, but really we're not doing very much to sort of push back the collective catastrophe that is coming. I just think the lack of perspective on the very strange, weak place that we're at is astonishing because it is not hopeless and there is an opportunity to do something that really changes the shape of what comes next if we accomplish the task that is necessary in Ukraine. And it's really that simple. If we do this, it is a major deliverable on all the things we should care about. And it creates space for the next thing that is going to be better. And if we don't, none of that is there. And there are no more opportunities. And whatever is next is harder. And like, how do we even create it? Like, what does that look like? Nobody has any idea, clearly. So why don't we do this thing that's right there, shining like a gleaming apple dangling from a tree? I don't, I mean, it's, it's just, it hurts my head that we've decided not to see this opportunity for what it is, which is a significant defeat of a strategic adversary that has been threatening to screw us up for a century and clearly is quite happy to keep doing that in patterned behavior over and over again. That is creating space for a much more aggressive uh, and much more potentially dangerous adversary, which is hiding behind it, pretending to be a neutral place that we can all do business with. I mean, this is catastrophe if we are really going to let this happen this way. What is a negotiated settlement in Ukraine? It is the rest of a century of turmoil for all of us everywhere. Okay. Last question. If you had Biden's ear for a couple minutes, what is one piece of advice you would give him about this conflict and what to do? believe that victory is possible, believe that the Ukrainians can deliver when they say they can, because they always have, and believe that it's possible to have a different future with Russia, and that our relationship with Moscow is not the central thing to our entire concept of how we are in the world. Period. End of story. And that's where they're all stuck, is that. I want to flip over to Politicology Plus in a minute, because I'm curious about your, we haven't talked about it extensively, I think, but about ties between Russia Iran, Hamas, this entire sort of their their interest to what extent they have one in in continuing to destabilize the Middle East. Um, so let's flip over to Politicology Plus and talk about that. But first, um, where can everybody find you, follow your work on the internet? <laughs> Are you writing still at great power? I have a, a long, long piece coming out soon. With the dying of Twitter, I am still on Twitter. Uh, I am on Blue Sky, other social media usually with the exact same name, at Molly McHugh, M-C-K-E-W, uh, and still greatpower.us, yes. General Molly McHugh, thank you. Thank just, you. just Molly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. 
If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.